Welcome to the Creating Structure podcast. It is the first Wednesday in September, and I am very pleased to have my guest, Denny Adams. Denny, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, John. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you here. Um, So you just got back from a backpacking trip, right? I did. I did. It was our 40th annual guys backpacking trip. Wow. Uh, Yeah, it was great. Had a good time. Um, My brother, who was your guest uh, on podcast number one, was with me and a bunch of college buddies. And um, we've been going backpacking every year for 40 years in the last 15 years. Uh, We thought, well, we're getting older. Let's start dedicating a week every year and taking a major national park. And so we went to... um, Went to California and did Kings Canyon, uh, about a 45-mile loop, Ray Ray Lakes loop, uh, climbed about 7,000 feet. It was just beautiful. I'll bet. I'm so happy that you were able to do that. So the first thing that's going to mess with our guests is they're going to be thinking, wait a minute, (laughs) this guy's an electrical engineer and he's backpacked every year for 40 years? Yeah, go figure. That's a disruptive paradigm. It kind of is, isn't it? I love it. Well, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit, a bit about your background, where you're born, where you went to school, what's your vocational career entail? Sure, sure. So uh, my brother and I were actually born in western Pennsylvania, uh, spent a little bit of time in Connecticut in grade school, but we really, our family settled to northeast Ohio uh, by late grade school. And then both my brother Dan and I went to the University of Akron in uh, 1973. And uh, he's a chemical engineer, and I decided I wanted to be an electrical engineer. And I actually made that decision a long time ago. I, I think I got in touch with my inner geek when I was about eight years old. And um, sometime around then, I was playing with electric motors, and I realized I loved to design things. And uh, later on, I realized those two desires converged at electrical engineering. So it was kind of a no-brainer for me. I love that. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I was one of these guys in my dorm room. I was building transistorized voltmeters in my dorm room. Uh, my poor roommate would jump out of his bunk bed and land on circuit parts on the floor. <laughs> he was very Is patient. that like stepping on a Lego in the middle? Pretty of the much. Yeah, a little more painful because yeah. these are pokey little pins on him. That's funny. So everybody else was drinking beer and playing cards, and you were putting together circuits. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. I like yeah, that. I had a lot of fun with that. Um, then I got, got my bachelor's, double E, a few years later, got my master's in electrical engineering, focused on digital signal processing. And um, out of school, I worked uh, for three years at a company up in Cleveland uh, doing controls for machine tools, metal turning lathes. And that company started going downhill when uh, the Japanese started kind of taking over the machine tool industry. And so a couple years into that stint, uh, some buddies of mine and I decided it would be fun to start our own business. So I kind of jumped into uh, entrepreneurship fairly early, and I, we, de- we designed and, and tried to sell uh, commercial audio equipment. So we made power amplifiers, uh, compressor limiters. I designed a real-time spectrum analyzer for uh, analyzing room acoustics. These are mainly for bands and concert halls and things like that. And so went full-time with them for a couple years and uh, realized just how hard it is to have a small company succeed. Well, and uh, you were very young, right? <laughs> we were young. How, and, how old were you? Oh, my goodness. When we started, we would have been um, 
probably 26 or so, something like that. And for our listeners, this was pre-internet. This is pre-internet, yeah. And matter of fact, microprocessors had not been around all that long. This wow. is the late 70s when we started that. What was the name of that venture again? Pulsar Laboratories. Pulsar Labs. Well, this is already fascinating because you got your bachelor's degree, you got your master's degree, you worked for a company, and now you started your own business. Right, exactly. So yeah. you know what both sides of the fence feel like. Right, exactly. And I realized just how hard it is to, to have a small business, to, to start there, especially when you're really young and green, and probably we should have learned things a lot easier and, and more cheaply <laughs> yeah. by, by asking questions before we jumped into it. But we learned a lot of things the hard way. And um, then after that company went out of business and I turned the lights off, basically, and the previous company did as well. I've left kind of a wake of devastation in my, <laughs> my path. <laughs> hey, you got to be good at yeah. something. <laughs> I knew when to move on, I guess. Um, then I, I went to work for Goodyear Aerospace. Uh, and that was the aerospace group within Goodyear Tire and Rubber. Started with them in 1983, and I worked with them for 37 years. Uh, wow. They became Loral Defense in, uh, I think, 87, and then Lockheed Martin acquired the company in, I think, 96. So I've been with them since then, and I just retired from Lockheed Martin uh, in June of this year. You just retired, but... It sounds like it's going to be tough to keep you in that category. You know, I absolutely loved my job. Uh, it was just a blast. The only thing I wanted was more time to do other things. Yeah. But I absolutely loved the job, loved the people I worked with, uh, the customers, uh, what they were doing to build up our defense capabilities, the technologies. Everything about it was great. Um, so uh, it looks like I will be probably consulting uh, with Lockheed Martin, uh, very likely toward the end of this year, once my six months uh, away are over. And I'm also working with a small business that's asked for some help, some consulting on proposals and capture strategies and things like that. So my goal is to keep the time commitment down, maybe a day or two a week, but uh, keep my fingers in it and still stay engaged. That's great. So as Colonel Flagg said on MASH, well, I tell you, but I have to kill you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what can, like, talk to us about your work as an electrical engineer, but more than that, as a defense industry expert, how that applied, like, at least what you can yeah, tell us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll talk about it at a high level and, and how some of those things shifted throughout my career. Um, so when I started, I had a background in signal processing, in acoustics, so I started, my first project was to help develop the acoustic, acoustic signal processor that would go in a torpedo-shaped vehicle, basically 20 feet long, 21 inches in diameter, that could be launched from a submarine. And the purpose of this vehicle was to train our uh, Navy people to hunt Soviet submarines. Remember, this was at the height of the Cold War wow. in, the, in the mid-'80s. So I worked on some digital signal processor algorithms, that would reproduce uh, both the tonals, the periodic tones made by rotating machinery on a submarine, and also the broadband noise of the submarine going through the water. Wow, I so I that. went through a lot of classified documents looking at hotel and echo class submarines and what their signatures were and how to replicate that. That's and, fantastic. And that was a lot of fun. And then um, later in the 80s, even more fun was um, I did a, a, quite a few projects with DARPA which is Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. 
And my first one with them was a very, very early neural network program. And they call them artificial neural networks. Uh, they've become more popular in the last uh, decade or so. They've kind of revived. But back then, they were brand new. And basically, they kind of mimic the way the human brain works with neurons and synapses connecting these neurons. They're really processing elements. But you train the connections between these, these, uh, these elements, and you give them a series of patterns, and then they learn those patterns, and then once they're trained, they can identify those things. So we, I ran a small group, uh, just like four of us together. We developed uh, algorithms that would allow us to detect uh, transients made by Soviet submarines. So um, DARPA came to us with a whole bunch of nine-track digital classified tapes, and some of them had uh, sounds of Soviet submarines, you know, doors, tunnels, uh, rudder squeaks, things like that. Uh, others had biologics, porpoise whistles, snapping shrimp, uh, uh, environmentals, ice creeks, groans, things like that. Wow. And then we would use that to train our neural networks. And we had this laboratory. This is back in the old day of computer printouts on the old line printers with the sprocket holes. I had the whole laboratory just lined with these things. We were creating images that we could recognize using some of these pre-processing algorithms. And then the final test was they brought a whole new set of sounds, and they would grade us, grade us on how well it uh, classified those. That's fantastic. So it, it was uh, probably one of the most enjoyable projects I ever had. It was a small team looking for new ways of doing things. Forgive my ignorance if this is a bad question, but it sounds a little bit like artificial intelligence, like mm -hmm. early predecessor to AI. That's exactly right. And they called it AI back then, but it really? was embryonic, and uh, it was really limited. Mechanical uh, circuitry and stuff? It was all uh, computers. So we had some fairly powerful processors, they okay. what they call digital signal processors that we used. Nowhere near as powerful as what they have today. Sure. And there's been a resurgent, a lot of resurgence. A lot of what we see in, in uh, AI today is machine learning that's based on artificial neural networks. But what's happened are several things. One is they began using uh, GPUs, graphic processor units, much more processing power. Another is that they started using very deep neural networks with a lot of layers, and they found that was more uh, advantageous. And then the third thing was they started using the internet for all the training data. Vast, vast sums of data out there that they could use for training the neural networks. So that's partly why you're seeing uh, neural networks so prevalent these days, even though you don't always know that's what's going on. Well, this is gonna be a great lead into our innovation discussion because um, you know, you're an early developer of AI neural network, that's fantastic. But before we go there, were there any other big technologies or innovations that you were involved in before you got into that proposal and capture work? So that's a really interesting question. Uh, I hired in in 83, and by 84, they were already pulling me into the proposal process. Okay. And so I had about 36 years of proposal experience. Now, the very beginning, uh, I was just an author. I would be writing some of the proposals. And, you know, you graduate from college, you've had your English comp, you figure you can write. Wrong. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Back then, <clears throat> you know, you just write it out, script on a piece of paper. And we had, actually had a typing pool. Uh, a bunch of ladies would actually type things up. And then we had editors who would mark it up just like your English teacher. 
and it would come back in flaming red. I'll I bet. thought, wow, I guess I don't know how to write. And so that was really valuable because I would look at what this editor corrected, you know, learn the editor's marks and how to change things around, how to talk in the active voice, uh, and how to, how to put a sentence together, how to put a paragraph together. And it was really an education process that helped me a lot. You know, you just triggered the whole communication theme that has really dominated a lot of our discussion. I'm going to refrain from spending the rest of the time <laughs> talking about how much more universities should be teaching and requiring technical writing and a love for the liberal arts, even amongst technical students, because we get out as young technical professionals and we don't know anything about writing. We think right. we do, but you just made the point. We don't know that we don't know that. And how nice it would be to still have a, an editor on staff oh. or somebody who could word process this and edit and check grammar. You know, no offense to word, but you can write stupid stuff and it still comes out oh, looking you, good. You sure can. You sure can. Wow. This editor was about my age, and her name was Amy. Just wonderful. And she edited my work for, for decades. I said, decades. Amy, I think when you retire, I think I better as well. <laughs> wow. Yeah, That's great. fantastic. Well, Denny, I got to say, even though you were only there for 36 years, after that wake of devastation, I have a strong feeling this podcast could revive your career after retirement. I mean, I think this is going to do it. Okay. That's, that's what I'm counting on, John. For our guests, <laughs> Diddy and I were joking before the, um, before the podcast that maybe we'd see if we have some extra room here at Wheaton Sprague. We'd like <laughs> take a piece of wax and, and write the <laughs> LLC name on the window. It's always good to have a sense of humor. You've got some nice rooms here. Yeah, thanks. So you were involved in proposals then the whole time. I was. Just and got deeper and more complex? Yeah, what happened um, is, is then my shift, uh, there's a shift in my focus of the technology because uh, by the end of the 80s, I was deep into the acoustic signal processing. That was a master's degree work, and I thought I would spend my career doing that. And then something unusual happened, unexpected, and that is that the Cold War ended. Mm -hmm. So ASW, anti-submarine warfare, was defunded uh, to a large degree. And so the contracts weren't coming to do that kind of work. Now, had they known the direction that the submarine threats were going to take, they probably would have maintained that. But they didn't have that foresight at the time. So I actually shifted my focus to electro-optics and infrared. Okay. So I began working with systems. Uh, when I say electro-optics, that means the visible spectrum, things we can see with our eyes. And then the infrared is longer wavelengths, uh, and there are different bands of infrared, uh, certain certain wavelengths propagate better in the atmosphere. So there's near-infrared, short-wave, mid-wave, long-wave, things like that. And I started focusing on those initially more for sensors to, uh, to passively detect threats and track them. And then I got more and more involved in uh, an area called electronic warfare. And EW, uh, often we think about radars and communication and, and radio systems where imagine you're going into a battlefield uh, and your enemy is emitting uh, RF energy, and you're doing the same thing. You're trying to confuse each other. Well, it turns out the same things ha happen in the electro-optic uh, and infrared regions. So I got pretty heavily involved in uh, countermeasures. 
So I worked some programs, I won't get into the details, but I worked some programs uh, that would use uh, infrared and, uh, and use lasers to defend ships and aircraft against incoming missiles that were tracking us in the either the visible or the infrared regions. And we would use uh, specialized algorithms to confuse the missile so it would go off course. And uh, I did that a lot, um, worked with some really bright people um, at our Akron site, and then we acquired a company out in the Seattle area, and uh, we began working with them more and more on some of the laser technology. And then in the mid-2000s, I got involved with high-energy lasers. So now we're taking the laser energy up from a few watts up to thousands of watts. What's and the big difference there? The big difference is, um, you know, the, the uh, countermeasures are sort of subtle. You're getting in there and creating signals that are going to confuse things and cause missiles or threats to go off course. Uh, the high-energy laser is more like a sledgehammer. So um, if you can imagine uh, having an oxyacetylene torch that you can hold that's several kilometers away, and you're going to hold that torch on a, on a point that's maybe two or three inches in diameter and maintain it there for several seconds, if you can imagine the kind of damage or effect that you can create with that, that's what we can do with a high-energy laser. Wow. So you can weaken structure, you can burn out sensors, uh, you can cause mortars to uh, blow up, actually deflagrate. Uh, there are a lot of effects that you can achieve that are very specific, very pinpoint, minimize collateral damage, high, highly directive. And uh, so those are the kind of things that they're starting to use high-energy lasers for right now. So <clears throat> did you and the company and your teams, I mean, were you pioneers to some of that technology? We were. We were really fortunate. The company that we acquired had been doing some work in fiber lasers. And a fiber laser, uh, those were being developed for the machining industry, machining, etching, marking, things like that for manufacturing. And fiber lasers have a lot of the qualities you want. They have very high efficiency, very uh, tight beams. They don't diverge very much, um, but and they're very rugged but they don't put a lot of power out. So you, you can get to a kilowatt or a few kilowatts. This company we acquired came up with a way of combining a large number of fiber lasers. So now you get into tens of kilowatts and okay. hundreds of kilowatts. So let's, <clears throat> I, that's fantastic. Thank you for helping defend and protect troops, by the way, that's a noble cause. And Thanks. there's an army with deference to the military. There's a really an army of technical professionals like you behind the scenes, right? Yep. Developing technologies to help and assist. And, and we, we had the privilege of working with the warfighters, you know, with the people in the laboratory who were funding the technology and developing it, and then directly with the warfighters who were using it. So that was always something that everyone I worked with took very seriously, yeah. just recognizing, you know, not only the privilege, but the responsibility there. So in that way, I mean, in our space, that's like an engineer working with a subcontractor, installer, fabricator, kind of how are you going to machine things and working backwards? Right. Is that really your end customer, your applicator in this instance? Yeah, the ultimate customer is a warfighter. He's the sailor or the, or the pilot uh, in the aircraft or the Marine on the ground that needs that laser to defend okay. him against a missile or a unmanned aerial vehicle. That's the ultimate customer. We don't typically work directly with them. We, sure. we work with are the laboratories, uh, Office of Naval Research, Naval Research Laboratory, Air Force Research Lab, uh, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. Those are, the, those are the folks that get the 
um, the technology funding to go develop the next generation of technology. And then we would write proposals to them to say, hey, here's the technology that we have. Here's how we believe we can extend that technology to meet your specific problem. So we would get, go very, very deep with these folks in the laboratory to really understand what the needs are. And then we would come back, brainstorm, innovate technology to meet those needs, and then put that into a proposal, which we would then present to them. Sounds a little bit like new product blueprinting. A I mean, this is bit. customer evaluation. So it's all. Similar. It really is. It really is. Yeah, that's uh, fantastic. So let's run with the innovation theme for a yeah. bit. I mean, we talked about this for a minute beforehand. And, um, you know, when I think about your work and what I've heard so far, like you're an innovator, but you're really great at the capture strategies and proposal work, too. Um, Let's talk about innovation for a minute. Yeah, great, great. Well, I think innovation isn't something you can do in a vacuum. Um, first of all, it requires a lot of interaction with the customer, and, and sometimes not just the laboratory customer, but sometimes interaction with the warfighter to get you know a little more insight as to what the real needs are. And I, I think this takes a lot of time, but in my experience, most of the innovations that we have are born out of a pretty deep understanding of the key problems. Um, so it takes time to dig down to really understand those. Um, I, I, I think um, working with them to uncover what those problems are is really key. And sometimes they can't even tell you. Sometimes you have to spend some time with those customers to, to really figure out what it is. Um, I'll just give you some examples. Um, one thing we were working on was a way of putting together a bunch of lasers together in a phased array and um, so that that phased array could combine a lot of lasers to create a high energy laser beam. And the real problem was we couldn't squeeze those together and still steer those beams. So one of the patents I have was basically a device that mechanically repackaged everything so we could squeeze those down very closely together so you could package these tightly and not create the side lobes that, that come from uh, not having them, you know, the node space closely together. Um, so a lot of times it's kind of a getting at the core problem of really what the problem is, and then coming back and doing a lot of brainstorming. Uh, it's great to work with a bunch of really bright people, and uh, my brother likes to talk about divergent thinking, and so right. I think it's really important to have that in, when you do your brainstorming, um, to have people who are feel comfortable throwing out oddball thoughts just to kind of get you thinking out of the box a little bit. And uh, that's really helpful. Do you think it's important in that process that someone, whether they want to or not, that they are given the role of devil's advocate and they have to create divergent thinking? I think if you get the right group of people together, you'll find that comes along naturally. Okay. You know, part of it is knowing who you're inviting to that brainstorming session and I would usually try to invite some people who were pretty way out there. And I would usually invite people who weren't that familiar with the technology. Oh, because, that's good. Yeah, because they would have, they didn't, they weren't constrained like the rest of us sometimes yeah, were. Oh, this point. has never been done before. They would just throw out ideas. And I noticed a trend. Uh, a lot of the really innovative things that we came up with started out almost as a joke. And when somebody first mentioned it, everybody would laugh. And that usually wasn't the idea we would run with, but that would often trigger another idea that we did run with. 
And so having people feel really safe in that brainstorming environment and feel free to just throw out off-the-wall ideas without being criticized, I think is really important because it, it may generate a whole stream of, of, of thoughts that, that lead to something that's really interesting. I like that. That's really good. Yeah. In fact, we had a president, Ronald Reagan, who threw out a crazy thought about Star Wars defense when we didn't even know if we could do it. That's exactly right. So visionary. Yep. No, that's really good. That's safe environment. We talk about that here. Like, hey, get everything on the table. And you have to allow people to feel safe. Right. By your So I got one other quick question on this innovation track um, from what you just said. Uh, when, so you've gone through this process, but when do we take innovation to the market versus let the markets describe the innovation they need from us. You know what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah. Like, I do. does your does your customer base, this defense unit, come to you and say, "Hey, we're thinking about this," or do you guys go to them, or is it a combination of both? So, for our customer, and it may be different, you know, with, with business to business, but for our customer, they generally would recognize a capability gap. Some of our customers would even come up with a document every year where they listed all these capability gaps. And they typically did not try to drive a solution. They say, we need a way to find this kind of a threat in this kind of environment. Okay. We need to find a way to you know, jam this kind of a missile. We need to do such and such. And so they would identify the capability gap, and that would leave it pretty wide open. So we would start say, okay, how would we do that today? What's the technology that we have? And what are the shortcomings? And there we could often engage the, our customer in the laboratory Okay, how are we doing it now? What are the problems with that? You know, what would make that better? And uh, and then we could go back and brainstorm something totally new to address that. So they asked the questions. They defined the topics. Mm -hmm. And they basically created an environment for you guys to step into. Yeah. Now, in that innovation process, then, after that kind of divergent, convergent thinking, how do you, how are we proceeding from there? So that's, that's the, the challenge. Uh, we would keep a very tight loop with the customer. If we came up with an innovation, before we matured it too much, I would take it back to that customer and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. Um, and then let them get involved in that loop and let them say, well, yeah, that's good, but what about this? Or have you thought about doing that? And that was really helpful for a couple of reasons. One, is um, they would have insights that I wouldn't have that were really beneficial, but probably the bigger benefit that made them a partner on it, and stakeholder. They were a stakeholder, Skin in the game. almost like a co-inventor, right? And so then that was kind of their idea as well as it was my idea or our team's idea, and then we would develop that jointly. And uh, these are customers that I could trust not to take the idea and you know broadcast it to competitors. And we would just work uh, in a tight loop with proprietary information, and they would help us kind of mature that idea. And so once we got it to a certain point, we might go back and do some risk reduction experiments on that to kind of do a proof of concept. We might use some of our own internal R&D resources to do that. But at some point, it becomes proposal time. Right. And so if you have all this work that leads up to that, and you know who's going to be evaluating your proposal, now you describe that innovation and what the next step steps are in the process of maturing that 
taking to the next what we call TRL, technology readiness level, where it's more mature. And now the customer reads your proposal and he says, oh, yeah, I, I remember this. Yeah, I've got involved in this. I like this idea a lot. And they incorporated the ideas that I suggested, bringing it to this point. And, uh, and they, also, they also listened to what I was saying about what are the next steps of risk reduction and maturation, and that's in their proposal. I think I'm going to fund this. <laughs> nice. We describe some of what you said as real-time communication, like this feedback. Loop. Right. I find it a very common thing, and it's, it's manifesting itself across all industries and technologies that the technical folks sometimes have a hard time engaging with the customer or the right. developer in real time. But I like that in your context, you're doing it on the proposal side. Right. So they're owning it up front. Yes. Yeah. And, and the proposal, you know, if you just received a request for proposal or just saw a broad agency announcement and you start scratching your head and start writing a proposal, you're probably way too late in the game. Right. Probably somebody else has already been in with that customer, suggested some things, and, and you're, you're playing catch up. So it can take a year or two before the proposal of starting that process for us to really engage that customer, really understand the needs and to innovate and, and keep that loop going. So as a technical professional, as a senior guy, were you spending time both as like a technical specialist, technical manager, and a proposal author, capture manager? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would What was that mix like, or did it depend on like where you were in your career or what the job was? Yeah, it, it kind of did shift throughout my career. I'd say the constant was I was always working in a proposal when it was time, it was like all hands on deck. We're dinner proposal guys, so everybody put everything aside. Usually there's a 45 or 60 day turn, firm deadline has to be submitted. So we're just going to go, you know, nose to the grindstone and put this proposal out. My role on that would shift. Early on, I was an author. Later on, I'm organizing sections. Later on, I'm, I'm organizing the whole tech volume and, you know, doing capture strategy and all that for it. When I wasn't doing a proposal, throughout my career, my jobs kind of changed early on. I was a guy who was writing software or I was designing printed circuit boards, you know, electrical engineering kind of work. And then a little later on, I was doing more work as a system engineer. So now I'm putting subsystems together and, and designing entire systems at a high level. But somebody else is doing all the detailed cabling and the PC boards and all that. And then a little later on, I would be doing more of the architect work for the entire system. And then uh, eventually, I started managing managing programs. So they were small programs. I'd have a small team, and I'd be the program manager for those. And then uh, about eight years before I retired, I actually switched over to business development. Full-time? Full-time, yeah. I see. So you didn't have any other technical responsibilities right and that kind of did they call you in as like a subject matter expert yeah they did yeah and and a lot of the business development folks are more focused on how do we sell the products to the people that we know in the navy or air force i was not that guy at all i I could never sell a ship to the navy (laughs) that would have been really a, a bad fit but what i was was a technologist who could go in and work with the laboratories and and talk about the uh, the s and t the science and technology level and then bring back those conversations to the engineers and brainstorm solutions. Do you think that's a natural progression to a person's career as a technical professional, or was there something unique about you that got you to the BD side? Um, Yeah, I don't think it's natural. Uh, 
a, a lot of the guys uh, would be very technical and some would specialize uh, and be very narrow and become a, a principal engineer in one area, but there's like maybe a couple of those in a whole site, so they're very rare. Mm -hmm. Other people would specialize and maybe focus more, more of their time in the laboratory, developing things and be perfectly happy with that. I was kind of drawn more toward understanding the front end problem and what new technologies needed to be developed. So that kind of drove me to have more of a, a strong customer relationship. I, I was drawn to that because I realized I think early on, for some reason, that if I didn't really understand the problem, I was not gonna be developing innovations that were gonna really go anywhere. That's it's just really gonna be good. a dead end, yeah. Do you believe that some of your entrepreneurial bent, which you described in the Pulsar yeah. venture, do you think you brought that to the table? Yeah, I think so. Do you yeah. think that's part of a person's DNA or it's something they can develop? It, oh, I think it can be developed, but I think some people just have more of a passion to do that. Yeah. Um, and for me, it was, I mean, it's just extremely enjoyable. I, so I have probably four or five patents. I don't think any of those patent ideas came up during work hours. I think they all came up either late at night when I should have been sleeping of course. or in the shower the next morning because I had been mulling over this problem through the night and all of a sudden the aha moment came out you know, the next morning. That is such a great comment. There's a term the French use for it. I forget what the phrase is, but you'll develop the thought after sleep. Right. You'll wake right. up in the morning with clarity or it's on a trail or in the shower or running or whatever. Yep. And I work with some people. I, we, had, we had a DARPA program. This is super hard. It was, you know, there's a phrase DARPA hard. Well, this went like DARPA impossible. It was just almost undoable. <laughs> and we did this program, and uh, I was the tech director, and he was a program manager. And he was kind of a nuts and bolts production engineer, and he was uneasy throughout that whole proposal because he didn't have the solution and the, and the schematics and the answer to it. I was just having a ball. I said, this is a really hard problem. And we're just going to get the team together and come up with the best solutions we can come up with. And I was absolutely having a ball. But for him, it was a horrible fit because he didn't see a path to getting to the end. And it was just driving him crazy and frustrating him to death. He was the operator. Yeah, exactly. Uh, your proposals, uh, was that a large team, small team, solo, or did it depend on the size of the capture opportunity? Yeah, it really varied a lot. Some, some of my favorites were pretty small. We'd write like an abstract white paper, it might be four or five pages, and then the actual proposal might be you know 15 pages, and that, that could be a very small team of three or four people. Uh, but some of the proposals, um, we had a marching army, and it was incredibly organized. That brought consultants in just to organize the whole thing. Our budget on proposals that I worked on, uh, it might have been, you know, maybe $70,000 for a small proposal. Keep in mind, we're DOD contractors, nothing's cheap, right? Or it might be $7 million. Some wow. are really expensive. For that the was, proposal. That was a 60-day proposal. <clears throat> we spent that much money. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. It was a big program. It was worth, you know, almost a billion dollars, uh, potentially. But, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's an appropriate effort. Yeah, exactly. Did you guys ever measure your ROI on your proposal efforts? What percentage you captured, cost per hour return, Oh, et yeah. Yeah, we had all the <laughs> metrics. Um, t 
typically you'd like to spend only a few percent of what the value of the contract is sure. on the proposal. Uh, and typically we'd like to have maybe 70% win rate uh, on competitive proposals. That's impressive. Yeah, and typically we got that. Usually so got you're that. really sniper shooting. You're not broad brushing. Exactly. Proposal. You're going after it. We knew, typically we knew the customer pretty well. We knew what he was looking for. And we had at least a base technology that would align with his needs that we could adapt to more specifically meet the requirements. You have to understand some of our contractor, subcontractor customers that are listening. I mean, the capture percentages vary, but a lot of them are used to 10 or 12%. Wow, yeah. Um, competitive so you- bid. But it speaks to the definition of customer and category and focus. Right, right. We would have no bid. We had bid, no bid meetings. First, we have a pursue meeting, decide are we going to pursue that. We have a series of gates. Once you decide to pursue it, then you're working with the customer, gathering more information. And uh, usually before the RFP or broad agency announcement comes out or right after, we'd have a bid, no bid. And there were some that we walked away from. We just didn't think we had a a, a high enough probability of winning. Yeah, that makes sense. I know we walked away from one today. We got a RFP unexpectedly, and it was due Friday. Right. And my consultant, he said, well, that's just not enough time. Right. You're just going to be throwing something at it. And sometimes we felt we'd have a pretty high P win, but uh, pretty low P funding. You know, yeah. we had to look at the customer's uh, budget as well. Do they have the money to really fund this right. if, if we're selected? That's smart. Yeah. Is there any other point you want to make about innovation, um, the approach to innovation, your love for innovation, um, anything else? I think if, if it's something that you really enjoy doing, it's, it's really worth pursuing because it can be just so enjoyable. Uh, if you get to work with a small group of people, uh, if you surround yourself with, the people, with a group of people who are innovative, who enjoy that, uh, have good ideas, uh, and a customer who really appreciates it, it, it's just about the best thing going for a job. It's just really enjoyable. Yeah. So you have five patents, you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's great. I, I think I do. I'm not sure, actually. I know I have four. The The first one I got was slapped with a secrecy order. So <laughs> I don't know for sure. That's good. I've, I've, it's got a number on it, so I think I have it. <laughs> well, you know what? True innovators, they probably don't know how many patents they have because it's just an expression of who they are, just yeah. like business owners, they may not know their price to earnings ratio or the value of their stock from day to day because they're focused on the being being an investment in the company yeah yeah so that's good um so let's talk about mentoring for a minute um this is a constant issue in industry you know finding the mentor mentee relationship and training and what's mentoring versus training did you have any mentors and if you did what was meaningful in that? You know, back when I was a young engineer, mentoring wasn't as big a thing. So I never had a formal mentor, but I had a lot of people that I watched very carefully. And so I would have people that were maybe 10, 15 years ahead of me in their career. And uh, back then, they were really good about having engineers go along with you on a, with them on a trip to see the customer. And so I just was able to watch and learn from, from them. 
I learned a lot about, um, probably one of the biggest lessons was just learning how to develop a relationship with a customer that's based on trust. There were some really, really good people that I had to that I got to work with, and they truly cared about the customer and, and the customer's needs. And they, I mean, they knew them well. They knew their kids' names. They knew, you know, where they lived. They they had personal friendships with them, and uh, they had a relationship that was based on trust. And they would guard that trust very, very carefully. And that was a that was a really good lesson to learn. Um, I learned a lot about proposals just by working with people who had a lot more experience and just watching how they did it. So I like your statement. <clears throat> I never had a formal mentor, but I learned a lot by watching others. How much of the mentor-mentee relationship is the responsibility of the watcher, the mentee? Do you believe that you have to basically go find that relationship? Yeah, I, I think a lot of that falls on the mentee, and I don't know that that's always appreciated these days. Um, I read a book that talked about mentoring, uh, not in a technical area, but outside of it, and they, they had an interesting perspective. They thought that um, a mentoring relationship sometimes puts undue pressure on both parties. Uh, you know, the person who's a mentor feels like they have this huge amount of pressure to come in with these uh, pearls of wisdom to drop on the mentee, and, and sometimes they, they, you know, work too hard at coming up with these, all this wisdom to, to pontificate. And sometimes the mentee feels like his role is just to sit there, not say anything, and, um, and just absorb, you know, just shut up and listen. And, and that's really not a healthy mentoring relationship at all. Uh, one book I read described it more as an intergenerational friendship. You know, where people are just really open and honest about where they're at. Here are the lessons I learned. I tell people all the time, here are the mistakes I've made. You may as well learn from mine so you don't have to make them yourself. Right. And um, just have that kind of relationship where the, the mentee is free to disagree with you, free to ask questions, you know, free to really probe deeply on why you did the things that you did and just share those things honestly. And then, then I think the communication flows a lot better. I like that. So there's an informality to mm -hmm. it. Yep. But yet we have to put some context to it. Right. In order to, to teach and train. I know we have a mentoring uh, program in our engineering department. It's working pretty well. But I like that thought about um, more of an intergenerational friendship. Right. Because to me, you have to ask yourself the question on the mentor-mentee relationship. Is it caught or taught? Right. Or is it a combination of both? Yeah. Do you think if it's do you think it's more of a life sharing in a vocational setting? I really think it is. Yeah. And it has to be, you know, built on a friendship and trust. And, you know, for, in my case, these were uh, engineers who I really admired. I watched the way they did their job. I watched their results. And I really admired that. So I was I was very eager to ask questions. And they were really free with, you know, their responses. And uh, I was just really comfortable watching what they did and, and uh, you know, learning from them. Did you, as a mentor yourself, how did you gravitate towards or find junior or younger folks? Or did they come to you or did you seek it out? I mean, how did you work through that? That's a great question because I realized that we weren't necessarily fostering that entrepreneurial spirit. So I would go to my management and say, hey, 
you know, I'm not going to be around here forever. I'd really like to get some people trained on the capture processes and just tag along and do some of these things. And um, it was sometimes hard to find people that had that interest to do that. The other thing, sometimes the people we would find to do that who really had that entrepreneurial spirit, they might be around a few years, then they really developed some really marketable capabilities and they moved on. Right. So it could be challenging. I would typically ask a lot of questions and to really find out what a person's uh, interests are. Um, I, I've had managers who are just really, really good at understanding their people uh, and what their capabilities are, what their interests are, what their desires are, and those are really good managers. And so I would try to really get at what was driving this person, what was motivating them, and then if that was an area where I can help them, then I could plug in there. But a lot of questions were key to that. I like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I've known you for a while, and you certainly don't shy away from work. You're, I mean, for a long time, you're a 45, 50, 60, 65 hour a week guy. Yeah. Yet, I know you've found time for a lot of other interests. How important do you feel those outside interests were to maintaining your energy and vigor and interest vocationally, that balance? They were really good. They, they were really important in that. Um, I, I, toward, toward the end of my career, there was a, a woman who was going to be replacing me. And actually, a couple of people came to me and asked, how do you keep your perspective? Um, how do you not get discouraged with the things that are going on or, uh, you know, get tied up with this too much? And I said, well, frankly, it's because this job is not the most important thing to me. It's fairly far down on my priority list in life. Wow. And I said, that gives me tremendous freedom to come in, do everything I can to help and uh and, and, and succeed, but, but then I go home and I, I, do, I do the things that are really important to me. That's great. And you're touching on mindset here yeah. then. Right. So right. How, how do you maintain, how have you maintained that mindset? So for me, as, as a Christian, my relationship with, with Christ is the most important. And uh, that's, he's my highest priority. You know, after him is my, my wife and my kids and, and friends and ministry. And somewhere in there is a job down, down a little lower, right? But yet you succeeded greatly at your job, but it's not a high priority. Right, because I, it, it really frees me. I don't get tangled up with worrying if somebody took credit for what I did or worrying about a promotion or so many things that a lot of people get put a lot of mental energy into. I didn't have to. I could just come in and have fun and... And enjoy it and uh, help people out and then go home and, and do other things um, so for me I guess you asked what are some of the things I, I guess if we're talking about structure right so yeah. what are some of the structures in life that help and um, for me probably one of the most important things is just being in in the word every day just being in the Bible every day and uh, that that's my morning time that's just really critical for me I last 10 years or so I've been going through reading plans that take me through the Bible every year. And mm -hmm. so that really helps ground me. Um, my wife and I are leading a group of young adults, you know, post-college up through 30. Uh, and we lead a co-lead a Bible study every, every Monday night with them. Uh, and just being in fellowship with other believers, that really helps a lot too. What I like about this is, you know, we're living in a really binary society. You know, you're either 
right winger, left wing. You're this or that. You're right. technical or uh, language, but you're speaking to being an electrical engineer, being a technical professional, being a Christian, uh, putting your family at a high priority, um, backpacking. So. There's a lot of breadth to your life. Don't forget harmonica, John. Harmonica. Did you bring your guitar? I brought my I harmonica. I did okay. not. I did not. I'm not sure <laughs> our, our guests are ready for They're that. They're probably not ready for that. We'll say that for another another time, maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll pull out old, start playing old slew foot or something. <laughs> but, yeah, I like that about mindset that your identity was not your job. Right, right. And yet keeping that job, that vocation in a proper lo- proper location in your life, proper priority, really allowed you to excel instead of the alternate. It did. It really did. There's a lot of freedom in that. I mean, I'm a, I, I would be doing a disservice to not confess that I'm a workaholic. And uh, I struggled with that balance a lot, especially owning a business for 26 years. And I'm sure we could do a whole podcast on that, but we won't go down that road. Yeah. Um, but I know that's a great example to me when your identity is not your job. Your right. identity is Christ or your identity is your family or identity is something other than what it is you're doing. Although some people, that is their identity. It is. And, and to be fair, there were times, there's always seasons, you know, there were times when we were working on a proposal and I'd be putting in 80 hour weeks. Wow. But it was actually 90 sometimes, but uh, but it would be limited. I'd limit that to the six, six week period of that. It's a sprint, then I go back to normal life and, and not let that take over. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. So, what other things do you do for fun? I've got a lot of hobbies. We. We hadn't been married too long, and my wife, Pam, came downstairs with a list of uh, of twelve hobbies. And, and her, she says, "You've got a lot of hobbies. It's way too many hobbies." And I looked at the list, and I wasn't that smart back then. I looked, I said, "Honey, I think you missed a couple <laughs> <laughs> things so, not to say." Yeah, things not to say, right? <laughs> She's very patient. Um, so I, uh, of course, I love outdoor things, love backpacking. I really enjoy landscaping, done a lot of that in the backyard. I really enjoy woodworking. I, I've got a nice woodworking shop, and I do a lot with, with that. I'm getting uh, all of our kids are very handy, uh, three married kids, wonderful spouses. I've got five grandkids, so I'm getting the grandkids into using some tools now and enjoying that. And then, of course, music. We've talked about that. I, what a rich life. I, I've played in a couple bands, and I really, really enjoyed it. When I would travel for work, I traveled quite a lot for work, and I would always bring several different keys of harmonicas. I would look for a jazz or blues club, and then usually by the second set, I'd be up on stage playing with the band. And that was really fun because they would look at me when I asked, and they'd kind of, you could hear, almost hear the wheels spinning, and this guy looks like an engineer. I'm not, I'm not so sure about this. Right. But after you play with them, you're communicating at a different level. And it's like your old best buddies. And it was really enjoyable meeting people doing that. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a, that's a whole different paradigm. So you're on the road, sitting in a club, mm-hmm. and you're just going up at break. And- it's great. And there's just nothing like that feeling. Now, harmonica is very expressive. And you can just... Once you play by ear and get reasonably good at it, you, you don't even know what you're going to play. Stuff just comes out. And it was just so enjoyable. 
you know, you're up there, the band brings it in, and they look at you, and you got your harmonica and the microphone, and you say, Denny, you have no idea what you're going to play, do you? Nope, I don't. And you just, all of a sudden you're playing, and this music is coming out of the speakers, and it's blending in with the, with, with the, with the band. It's a real right brain kind of a thing. It's really enjoyable. Yeah, it sounds like it. How long have you played harmonica? Oh, let's see, about 34 years now. Yeah. So you took that up as an adult. I did, yeah. I think yeah. about 31 when I started. I found a place that I could practice twice a day, 15 minutes each time, longer if traffic was heavy. <laughs> Don't do this at home Don't without do this at home, supervision. Yeah. <laughs> In the car. In the car, yeah. That's good. So there's hope for people who don't have a musical instrument that they play and they are an adult. Absolutely. And my biggest tip would be uh, just recognize that you're going to sound really bad for the first year. So a lot of it, I think with a lot of things that we learn, part of it is just getting through that learning process of really not being good at it for quite a while. And just giving yourself the freedom to kind of stink at it for, for a while yeah. until you gradually learn it and start to improve. And then it's all, all of a sudden it's very, very enjoyable. Yeah, that's a good point. You've got to be able to do that. Um, what about exercise? Do you have a routine there at all that helps feed your brain or build your immune system? Like, what, what do you do? I do. I do, yeah. I, um, I like to kind of mix it up. Uh, as I've gotten older, I do more and more flexibility exercise. So I'm mm-hmm. doing a lot of flexibility exercises every morning. And then I mix it up. I either uh, will hit the treadmill, and I'll usually hit it on a high speed and a lot of incline, uh, or I'll do strength training. And for that, I'll either do stretch bands or body weight trainings or you know dumbbells, things like that. Is that every day? Um, one of the two is pretty much every day. Yeah. So you're six or seven days a week. Yeah, I'm pretty much hitting the treadmill or, or uh, hiking on a trail probably three or four days a week. And then the other times I'm just doing some exercise. Not always a lot, but just enough to keep things toned up and you want to keep some muscle mass going. Yeah, that's for sure, especially as we get older. As we get older, it takes more maintenance. The resistance and training is big. It is. And you need the core strength and all that, even for backpacking. It's not just legs. And when you go backpacking, you don't want to be the guy in the worst shape. That's for sure. <laughs> so talk to us for, uh, we've got a couple minutes left. Talk to us about the LLC. You're going yeah. to so, be doing some side work here, or not side work, some primary work in retirement. Yeah, uh, and so it's just very embryonic. Uh, I just am going through the process of setting it up. I just recently got it registered. John, you helped me a lot with the name, so appreciate that. And, uh, you know, go through the steps of getting it registered, get the domain name, get the bank account. And right now I'm, I'm, I'm working with a customer in the Pittsburgh area who's got some really interesting uh, technologies for processors, for high-speed processors. And what he wants to do is do the uh, edge computing, uh, edge of the cloud to get things into sensors for the DOD. And so I'm meeting with him along with his office and naval research customer. So I'm just going to help him with strategy, help him at a high level with proposals. And uh, I, I would enjoy probably doing more work with small businesses with kind of cool technologies just to help them along. And then uh, we've got some pursuits. I say we because I feel still, still feel like part of Lockheed Martin, some really good people there that I really enjoy working with. Uh, there's some pursuits going on there. And once I'm past my six-month uh, moratorium, uh, that, that they can bring me back. I'll probably help them with some proposals and some capture strategies for that. 
Am I allowed to um, hold you accountable for not working too many days? Yes, you, please do. Please do, yes. You're supposed to enjoy your retirement. Yeah, and You're I tell you. are supposed to increase your energy. Exactly, and I'm really enjoying the time in retirement. There are a lot of new things I've been able to do that I'm really enjoying. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, we Hold haven't me even touched on the fact, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. We haven't even touched on the fact that you're really, a, I consider you a master woodworker. I really enjoy that. And that's something I want to delve into more deeply. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know if I have too challenging of a project, I usually say, hey, Denny, it's either my dad or you. Like, I, do you have, do you have uh, pipe clamps? Do you yep. have this? Do you have that? And I like that because there's a lot of problem solving that goes on that. I like the design aspects. I, I don't usually take a plan that exists. I'm usually working it up myself. And so I, I've enjoyed that, uh, that problem solving aspect of, of new designs too. I'm sure our listeners will know this, but uh, I mean, I know a lot of engineers and constructors and designers. They're, they're good craftspeople. Yeah. Um, I say craftspeople crafts women crafts men um you know whether it's leather work or harmonica playing or woodworking or sewing or it, it it's a very impressive uh group it's really rewarding and one of the things that that i would like to do more of um in retirement one of my goals in retirement was to work more with young people uh both our grandkids but also younger folks at, at church and i've worked with teenage boys for like 25 years uh, at church. And one of my goals is to work with them and older men who have developed specific skills throughout their lifetime and work to help transfer those to the younger folks too. Not just guys, but guys and girls. And I'm finding there's a lot of interest in younger people uh, who have not had home ec, they've not had uh, shop class, woodworking, things like that. They're really interested in learning some of these things. Yeah. So one of the things I want to kind of step up a little bit more too is just working with younger people to kind of help transfer some of these skills. I like that. So where can we find you on social media? Just LinkedIn? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, right. Okay, so they can, what are you on LinkedIn? Uh, just Denny Adams. Denny Adams. Mm -hmm. Yep. Great. And um, your LLC, what's the name going to be? It's Adams Tech Strategies. Adams Tech Strategies. Yes, T-E-C-H. Yeah. Great. Anything else? No, thanks for, thanks for having me, John. It's been a pleasure uh, to have you. And um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, thanks for joining in. Uh, comment if you like. We uh, really enjoy the engagement, really enjoy interfacing with everybody out there in the community. Thanks to Denny for the generosity of your time. Thanks to Josh, our ace audio engineer, podcast producer social media manager, procurement guy. Appreciate you, and uh, we'll catch you next time. That's it for today.